and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 42 on January 28th, 2022. Coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today is going to be a little different. Um, I'm going to speak a little more extemporaneously about foresight, influence, and what we do here at the Institute. We'll also have a couple Institute updates, uh, kind of a preview of some really cool stuff we have coming out soon. Hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Subscribe to us on YouTube and check out our website, of course, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. So this last weekend, my friend Rita was over, and Rita runs Rye Revival. You can find them at ryerevival.org, and their organization is primarily interested in getting rye to be a a more common crop here in the Midwest and the U.S. and the world in general. Uh, It's a great plant. Uh, I really enjoyed growing it this year, and there's a lot of different applications for it. It's a kind of an underappreciated grain, so check out ryerevival.org. But anyway, Rita was here. We were having a conversation about running small nonprofits, and both of us are pretty mission-driven, but to get our missions done, we kind of need support. And often that comes down to financial support from larger organizations, foundations, and things like that. And we were talking about how difficult it was to attract the interest of these larger organizations. And after she left, um, and we had a couple different snowfalls, and I had to shovel the driveway and gave me time to think, and I really started thinking about how the number one question I get from people about the organization is, what do you guys exactly do? You know, you're kind of all over the place. We have classes on all kinds of things like beekeeping, um, hot water, uh, solar panels, uh, photovoltaic solar panels, potatoes, flax growing and processing, uh, wheat, composting, uh, wool, all, just all kinds of random things. So just kind of all over the place. And, of course, our tagline is housing, clothing, and feeding ourselves in a world without fossil fuels, right? So we're kind of thinking about that time in the... Approaching future where fossil fuels won't be such an important part of our lives and uh, how are we going to live comfortably? That's what we're all about. And if you think about it, uh, before uh, fossil fuels were a big thing, before industrialization, people were Jackson Jills of all trades, right? Uh, They were generalists. We were able to uh, do a lot of different things. I would think of even my grandpa who lives out on a small farm in North Dakota and I was just as a kid, really impressed with all the different skills he had from carpentry and welding to animal husbandry and just equipment repair and, you know, making do and fixing what he had. It was just really impressive. And that's not a stitch on what people could do before industrialization when they really had to locally source and repair and do all of these things. Now, of course, we had what are called craft specialists. And those are people who devote their lives to a specific craft, like a blacksmith or something like that, or a miller. Uh, But most people in history have been generalists. And yes, what we do at the Institute is kind of all over the place, or I like to describe myself as a jack-of-all-trades, but I actually don't have that diverse of a skill set. It's just that most people today have a very narrow skill set, and that's fine. You can make a living doing something very narrow. I used to do that. I used to be an archaeologist, which is pretty narrow skill set. So speaking of archaeology, um, I have a little bit of background knowledge of classical stories, and one of them comes from Greece, and it's the story of Cassandra. Cassandra was the sister 
of Hector, who was famous in the Trojan War. And the story goes that the god Apollo was so taken with Cassandra that he wanted to give her a gift, either because she promised to marry him or to you know bear his children, whatever, um, or because he wanted to get her interested in him, either way. Uh, he gave her the gift of foresight. And when she either reneged on that promise or didn't become interested in him, he was spurned and then he cursed her. Well, he didn't really curse her. He couldn't take away the gift he had given her, so he added something on top of it. And that was that no one would believe her. So Cassandra had foresight, but nobody believed what she said. And sometimes I feel a little bit like Cassandra, although maybe that's putting um, too grand a explanation on it. But I continually say, and the research and position of the Institute has been that our world will be changing. And usually I say, well, sooner or later, we're not going to use fossil fuels. And that's kind of mealy-mouthed. I'm trying to, you know, get other people interested in what we're saying. If I said what I really think, which is what I'm going to say here in a minute... Uh, I think we would have a lot less people interested because it sounds very extreme, but this is what I've been looking at for a long time, and this is evidence-based supposition that I think we have a quarter century until our world is going to significantly change, either because we choose to change it or because we run out of oil. And I'll explain that in a little more detail in a minute. But I've been vague on purpose to try and have a, a large tent. And I still want to have a large tent. I want to attract people to what we're doing. But at some point, we just need to be truthful and honest and still try and attract people. You know, we can create artificial deadlines for what's happening with our climate and fossil fuels, you know, things like, uh, you know, zero emissions by 2050, things like that. Or we can just let things run out and, you know, end up like Mad Max. We have, and this is how I often frame it, we have the, the choice of voluntary abdication or involuntary collapse. And what I mean by that is we can choose now to stop using fossil fuels and rapidly shift to a non-fossil fuel based economy and way of life. And that's a choice we have to make. And obviously that means when I say voluntary abdication, we're obviously giving something up. And that's a lot of the creature comforts and ease that we have right now because so much of what we do is underwritten by fossil fuels. It, it, it powers it. If uh, you go back to a podcast I've done previously on uh, energy slaves. It's an idea by Buckminster Fuller that instead of having human slaves, as m many human societies have had through history, we have energy slaves. We have uh, toasters and cars and uh, tractors and other mechanical things that do the work that would have been done by slaves in the past. And he draws a direct parallel between industrialization and the drop of slavery in the world, uh, which I think is interesting, but we're getting a little far afield. Listen to that podcast if you like. That is one option we have, is to liberate our energy slaves, at least our fossil fuel energy slaves. Uh, or we can just keep going as we are. And then when fossil fuels run out, uh, there we are, sitting ducks. So it's kind of like we've jumped off the springboard of fossil fuels, and we have a choice right now. Are we going to dive smoothly into the water, or are we going to belly flop? It doesn't matter what we choose. The water's going to come and hit us either way, but we have the choice of if it's a smooth or a painful transition. Imagine for a second that you're writing a sci-fi book about the economy and the world transit system collapsing in 25 years. And let's say in this book you're the protagonist and you saw it coming. 
you saw all the signs and you said, yeah, in 25 years, things are going to be so different. How would you write your protagonist a positive narrative so that he or she could revamp their household and their community to be self-sufficient in that time frame or in a much shorter time frame, really? Maybe making a community biodigester to take a whole bunch of compost uh, materials and make equivalent to natural gas. Um, or maybe a community shared uh, wheat field or uh, potato plots or other community uh, sharing economy type things like maybe having a tool shed with uh, different tools and maker spaces within each each neighborhood so that you could build the things you need. There's lots of different things we could do. Um, reviving a lot of previously uh, common skills like uh, spinning and weaving and uh, preservation of food, eating seasonally and locally, all these different things, right? So then if my Cassandra prediction is that we have about a quarter century until our fossil fuel dependent transit system does collapse and will obviously take down our economy with it, what are you going to do about it, right? This goes from the freeing kind of open-ended question of considering what would you write for a sci-fi book to, hey, this is reality and this is going to happen. So what are you going to do? So in book two of Virgil's Aeneid, uh, translated here by John Dryden, they say of Cassandra, Cassandra cried and cursed the unhappy hour, foretold our fate, but by God's decree all heard and none believed the prophecy. That's kind of where we are. Um, Cassandra's crying and saying, this is going to be bad, but nobody believed her. And so I keep saying 25 years or a quarter century. Where do I get that number? So if you go to Google and you type in how much oil is left in the world, you get uh, 47 years is the, is the top answer. And it doesn't really matter which source you go through. I've seen 50, I've seen 60, I've seen 30. It doesn't really matter. Mostly all they do is they take the current known reserves of 1.6 trillion barrels, and this number hasn't gone up significantly in a long time. So it's not like we're not going to find another you know trillion barrels of oil somewhere. And on top of that, we don't even want to burn all the oil because that's going to cause climate catastrophe, which will make our transition all that much harder. And you take that 1.6 trillion barrels and you divide it by the yearly consumption, which is currently 35 million barrels. And there you get 47 years. But that's a little too simplistic, isn't it? The oil that we've already pumped and our current consumption is more or less easy oil. We've extracted all the easy sources and now we're getting into tight oil, as it's called. So the price of extraction goes up and the supply goes down. And then also the price of alternatives goes down. So electric vehicles, electric transit, yada, yada. And this causes or will cause the price of fossil fuels to skyrocket. So we're not going to be using the same yearly consumption for the whole time, but we're also not going to extract all of it. So 47 years is not a realistic timeline to be thinking about this. It's more like a quarter century if we're lucky. And even then we're burning too much fossil fuels in that amount of time. So Again, this comes back to how are you going to get your self-sufficiency ducks in a row starting right now? And that's what we're all about here at the, the Low Tech Institute. The problem is nobody wants to hear this. And those who have already come to this realization themselves, and that's kind of the only way you can come to it, they're already in the choir. And when I say no one wants to hear it, that's obviously not true. You're listening to a podcast right now, so you are literally listening to it. Um, and Thank you for listening. Uh, ser seriously, I, I can see how many people listen each episode, and I'm really glad for each and every one of you. 
So thank you, seriously. But when I say nobody wants to listen, I mean moneyed interests. They don't want to hear what we have to say, and they certainly don't want to promote what we're saying. And let's dive into that just for a minute. Um, Every year, this is a little bit behind the scenes, I route to foundations and organizations and corporations and ask for support. And the only funding we really get, uh, aside from personal donations, which we are extremely grateful for and are very careful of shepherding those funds, um, we get grants. And we get grants because I have experience writing grants. I'm an academic, and I'm able to couch what we're doing in ways that are compatible to existing grant systems. But uh, I'm not as good at writing nonprofit letters asking for money, so th- that that's a given. But I also realize, or now realize, that I've been trying to shoehorn a heterodox message into a shoe that fits orthodox mentalities. What do I mean by that? I know I'm saying something that is a little swimming against the current, uh, even against the current of a lot of existing environmental and sustainability nonprofit organizations. They're much more business as usual, plus a little bit of green uh, consumerism on top. That's overstating it and a little mean, but you, you understand what I mean. I try and finagle and massage our message into something that would fit each of the different corporations or organizations that we write to asking for money uh, along the lines of what they like to give. It's frustrating, but that's kind of how it goes. The problem is every endowment and foundation, corporation, and organization with enough money to support nonprofits in a significant way, they don't want to hear that the economy that made them rich has to be dismantled and rebuilt. Who roots for the away team? Who cheers for the Washington Generals? And that's about exhausting my knowledge of basketball. Washington Generals are the team that plays against the Harlem Globetrotters, and they always lose. So... If the Low Tech Institute is all about DIY and household and community self-sufficiency, if we're advocating for people to make what they need from what is near them, resources that are often freely available or very cheaply available or abundant, it doesn't support the economy. It never shows up in the GDP. I grow a lot of our food. Uh, Last year, I grew most of our food, and we went through uh, Foodmageddon, which was a... um, a study to see could we grow all our own food if we were cut off from the outside world. And you can see that on our YouTube page or go to our website and you can find the Foodmageddon information. But basically, none of that showed up in the GDP. There was no GDP uh, uptick for the wheat I harvested or the potatoes or any of that. Who's going to fund something that doesn't add to the economic bottom line of anything? So really, all of our donated funds have come from individuals, and I'm not complaining. My goal here wasn't meteoric nonprofit riches. <laughs> it was uh, really cathartic for me after writing a book about the collapse of ancient, well, you call them civilizations or complex society, better said. And in this book, which is called Why Ancient Civilizations Failed, not my title, I wanted to call it Hubris, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, I looked at Rome and saw how they collapsed when they hollowed out their interior agricultural and economy uh, to make finished goods, relying on their colonies to supply the raw materials, and, and, and that faltered uh, when the empire uh, stopped expanding. Looked at the Maya, who were unable to absorb a unusually large series of droughts, and that caused the top of their society to have to reorganize. Uh, the Inca and the Aztec faced just a few hundreds of conquistadors, uh, and they weren't able to unify their peoples against them and 
push them back into the sea, uh, potentially saving themselves uh, subjugation. Uh, Mesopotamians continued their agricultural practices when it was clear that uh, canal-fed irrigation uh, was solidifying their fields. You can hear all about these in a previous podcast. I think it's like podcast one through six. So way back to the beginning of the Low Tech Podcast. So check those out if you want to learn more about that. And after writing about all these ancient civilizations and their and their collapses, uh, I got kind of depressed. And I really started thinking about our own society and what our Achilles heel is. And our Achilles heel isn't the end of fossil fuel. That's a technological problem. Our unwillingness to accept the end of fossil fuels, that is our Achilles heel. This is a type of, type of hubris. Our society is full of hubris that, ah, we'll figure it out. Scientists will figure it out. That's a type of uh, belief in technology called high modernism, and is, uh, it's magical thinking. What it keeps us from doing is proactively feathering our nests for this new era. You know, we are coming out of the industrial age. That's all there is to it, and we're going to be coming into something new. What that is depends on what we decide to do now. And from what I've seen, we're not deciding to do anything about it. And maybe this is because I'm an archaeologist, right? I look at 100-year periods, 300-year periods, uh, even thousand-year periods in the deeper history as kind of an overview. And so maybe I have more of a, a global long-term perspective than, than most people do. But it doesn't make it a wrong analysis. It's just a different perspective that maybe we need to consider. And I'm not also saying this just to ask for donations. Although, you know, if you want to donate, we certainly will not turn them down and we'll put good use to any any funds that come in. But I really want to exhort you to look locally where you are um, that's why we do this podcast is to reach people outside of our area, although we're glad of any local listeners too. Um, the best changes are local. And I often say household and community or often say individual household and community because in America, we're not all going to create a whole bunch of communes or kibbutz or anything like that. Uh, Americans are too individualistic. There's a selection bias for those who made the gamble of our ancestors, made the gamble, the risk takers who came to America. And they're very individualistic. And that's just what our society is. And I've accepted the fact that we're all not going to just band together for the best. And so when I talk about solutions, I talk about individual, household, and community. Because most people, if they can see the change in their community on a day-to-day basis, it's different than if it's a big thing like uh, the Green New Deal or something like that. Uh, community biodigester makes a real difference in your life. It takes your compost and makes free cooking gas. And so uh, if you can find local resources, uh, local community gardens, maker spaces, uh, maybe alternative society groups, uh, time banks, things like that, support them with your time, energy, and if you can, financially. And so what are we doing here at the Institute? We're going to keep moving forward. The only difference more money would make to us is the pace of what we do. And my only regret is that time is finite. A year of slow growth here is a year less we're able to get households and communities, see there's that phrase again, to start retrofitting their indoor and outdoor spaces. And as I was coming up with the, the outline for this podcast, I kind of thought, eh, it's not really retrofitting. We're not taking something and... And, and, and redoing it, uh, we are thinking about the future. So we're more future-fitting, and I think maybe that's a term I'm going to start using uh, when I talk about some of the changes that we suggest people do to their homes and spaces. But if I were trapped in an elevator with a billionaire, and she or he asked, what would I do with a million dollars of funding, I would have an answer ready. And uh, basically, it's we'd make everything we do better in terms of quality, quantity, 
and a little bit tighter focus. And this means we would tackle the most important systems to maintain life locally without fossil fuels. And we look at uh, water, food, energy, structure, clothing in the order that they are most important to survival. And for each one of those, we want to create simple DIY solutions for households and communities to support themselves. Maybe this is, like I said, a neighborhood biodigester or a microgrid, uh, electric grid that's just shared within a neighborhood. Intranets where people can still share uh, digital media and other interactions, communications within a neighborhood. Uh, community herds of uh, flocks of animals uh, for meat and, and wool. Local time banks, shared community scale gardens and fields neighborhood makerspaces, household stockpiling and provisioning. All of these help us to prepare for long-term change, and also they help us weather short-term disruptions. Think of uh, Texas last winter. I have family in Texas, and so I think about that a lot. Another thing we do is we'd offer prizes and seed money to initiatives of community self-sufficiency. We don't have a patent on all of these ideas. We don't have, uh, we're not the only ones thinking about these things, thank goodness. And we would be glad to offer seed money and uh, prizes for uh, local solutions that fill a need without fossil fuels. We'd also increase the quality and quantity of our outputs. And this is one of them. We would do more podcasts. Uh, we would self-fund research that doesn't fit into existing archetypes, and we have a lot of that. We would increase the production of the bulletin guides, and this is something I'm going to try and do anyway. But really, we want to make our bulletins kind of a one-stop shop for guides to simple solutions to doing different systems. Right now we have one on vermicompost, which is worm composting, but we need to do some on, on solar, hot water heating, and other things in the short-term future. We create more and better YouTube videos, especially our R&D series, which I'm really excited about. I just haven't had the time to do it. We make the blog more regular and substantial. Really, it's just a lack of time right now because our staff is all volunteer, and I'm grateful for all the volunteer hours we have. But it's basically me doing a lot of this, which I like doing, but I'm not a nonprofit manager. I'm not an education manager. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not all of these things. I am an academic so I would consider myself a scientist, a researcher, and also an instructor sometimes. And so those are the things I would focus on. And we would love to hire somebody who's a nonprofit manager and fundraiser, somebody who manages educational programming, and we would get more classes on the books. All again, all of our work has been volunteer hours. And we're really proud of what we've done with so little. But if we could go full-time or even part-time with some of these additional positions, I think we could really step up what we're doing and really make a name for ourselves, not just so that we have a name for ourselves, but so that we can get these ideas out there. And that's the important thing for us. And finally, the last thing we do with our million dollars from this billionaire in the elevator is we'd build a timber frame structure to house our new office, workshop, and event space. And we would do this using our soon-to-be-announced 10-mile building rubric, which I'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. And it would be a showcase of what can be done in local low-energy construction. And I hate to keep harping on money, and this isn't meant to be about money. The title was a little bit clickbait, and I apologize for that. But we're interested in influence and foresight, right? We think we have the foresight, and we would like to have more influence so we can get that idea out there. Unfortunately, today, it's really hard to share a message, especially an uncomfortable one, really widely without funding. That's just the long and short of it. Uh, short of going viral, and I haven't cracked that code, nor am I actively really spending a lot of time on that. We are grateful to those who see our work and listen to our podcasts, and we hope it resonates with you, and we've certainly heard from plenty of people with whom it resonates, and that's, that's great. But to have a chance for a future for humans and basically everything else on the planet, creatures and ecosystems alike, 
We need a sea change in how we think about our world, the economy, and our place where we live. An example. In the aftermath of World War II, the Swiss government suggested that every household should create a small stockpile. There have been ups and downs in hoarding during World War I and World War II, and they are very dependent on imported food in Switzerland. And so they wanted to avoid this. And so they wanted families to keep enough to keep each person hydrated and fed for a week. It was not met with instant success. Um, it took a few generations, actually, of committed campaigning and teaching in schools, and etc., uh, to make this common practice among the Swiss. And now, when the pandemic hit, Switzerland did not experience the hoarding scene in other countries. And this is an example of the type of change we need to see. But think about this. It took a few generations to get people to keep a few extra kilos of sugar, pasta, and oil in their basement. Imagine the challenge we face to convince enough people to overhaul their entire home energy use, food systems, and really whole way of life. It's a much greater hill to climb. Kurt Vonnegut suggested that we have a cabinet secretary of the future. And really, long-term thinking is difficult for most human societies. And this isn't just industrialized, instant gratification junkies. We see laid-back hunter-gatherers not really thinking beyond the next day or two uh, in most cases, maybe they'll have an idea of, yes, we're meeting up with others, you know, in the fall or whatever. Long-term uh, systemic work or change isn't really common in human societies. It takes a big mental shift. And when businesses and people generally think about the future, they're at best talking about next quarter, maybe not even the next year. And really, we need to be thinking about the next quarter century and beyond. And one thing we're trying to do in addition to developing strategies to house, clothe, and feed ourselves is to show that we have the option to create an abundant future. This isn't just a doom and gloom, dystopian view of the future without fossil fuels. It doesn't have to be that way. We can choose to make it something else, and that's what we're trying to do. It would be a different type of abundance than we have right now, though. Today, we live in a world uh, awash in energy and consumer goods. Tomorrow, our abundance would be things like community connections, local food, and self-sufficiency, um, and probably a lot more time at home with our families. And we have to learn to prize real individual household and community self-sufficiency instead of buying things from far away that are greener. And obviously, if you're going to buy something from far away, it's better if it's, you know, quote-unquote green than the alternative, but even better if you can make it at home. And we need to learn to create what we need from as close to home as possible. And you can help us by being an agent of change in your own community. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. And what I want to say here is we have two exciting things coming up, or three really. First, um, in a couple of weeks, we'll be at the Wisconsin Garden Expo, and if you're in the Madison area and you'd like to volunteer with us, all you have to do is send us an email, info at lowtechinstitute.org, and I'll get you set up on that. Uh, we ask for you to stay at the booth for an hour or two, and then you have a pass for the whole weekend. Uh, real easy. Um, just ask you to look at the website to get an idea of what we do. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already have a good idea, and we'd be glad to have you. In hopefully a week or two, I will be publishing what's called the 10-mile building challenge. And a little preview is basically the idea that this would be an alternative to LEED certification, and it would be aimed at alternative builders and people who build uh, eco-friendly structures. And this is a way to audit your building, 
to show that all the materials for the building came from an average of 10 miles or less. And if you do that, it's very hard to build unsustainably. And so this would be a way to score timber frame or earth bag or uh, straw bale or other construction methods. So keep an eye on our blog for that. You can sign up for our blog at the bottom of our webpage, which is lowtechinstitute.org, if you haven't already. We also are going to try and focus our efforts. As I said, our, the number one question I get is, what exactly do you guys do? And it is true, we are kind of scattershot all over the place, but so is life, like I said. And so what we're going to do is we're going to create a rubric to kind of organize ourselves. And it's going to be around the idea of tiers of self-sufficiency. And there's going to be tiers ranging from, hey, we could be self-sufficient for a week, a month, a year, or perpetually. And so each one of those is going to have suggestions and systems for water, food, clothing, shelter, products, community, and other things that you should have in place to meet that criteria to be self-sufficient for X amount of time. And that will help us kind of focus what we do. Oh, you know, you already can repair clothes. Why don't you learn to make clothes by coming to a class on spinning or weaving? You can, oh, you can already garden. Great. Why don't you come to a class on preserving so you can eat that garden produce all winter? Things like that. Um, just to kind of focus what we're doing and put it onto a skeleton so it's a little more comprehensible for people. So check that out. That's coming out soon too. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Bubba's Blues off the album... What's the album called, Scott? How It's Done in Italy by My Bubba and Me. That song is under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use it and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by its members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. Find us on social media and reach me directly. My email is scott at lowtechinstitute.org. Thanks, and take care.